Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, it's me, Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. I had a really powerful conversation with today's guest, Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts. She's extraordinary. We'll get to her in just a second. But first, I want to say a quick thanks to the Diamond Producers Association, who made this episode possible. The jewelry women wear is entirely personal, and it's often the story behind the diamond earring, ring, or bracelet that makes the piece all the more important to us. For different newsletter stories, the Goop editors have interviewed women about the first natural diamond they ever bought themselves, or the most special one. Sometimes these self-gifts were a long time coming, and others happened seemingly on a whim, but they all ended up marking a special moment in time to celebrate. Why are we drawn to natural diamonds in this way? I think part of it is that they come from the earth, they're rare and finite, and of course beautiful, and as someone who leans toward minimalism, I think it's also because diamonds are one of the few things that become more valuable to you the more you wear them, because they're timeless. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Laura Morgan Roberts is a professor of organizational behavior. Laura built a career around a passion that she developed at an early age, and that's making other people feel as fulfilled as possible in their careers. Much of her work centers around creating inclusive and diverse work cultures. Today, we're talking about how focusing on our unique strengths in the workplace can lead to more successful companies and also feed our soul. So being at our best is like this sweet spot when we're taking a set of our core strengths and we're putting them into practice. 
in a way that feeds our soul. And it also adds value, contributes, helps to strengthen and build up and edify other people or the organization itself. Let's cut to my chat with Laura Morgan Roberts. I know you are at a million business schools at all times teaching and lecturing. How I mean, I know you're at HBS this week and you're normally in D.C. I'm normally in D.C. I've been on the faculty of Georgetown McDonough for the past two years. I've just joined the faculty of UVA Darden. But I teach in executive programs at other business schools, including HBS. Yeah. No, it's it's like the longest laundry list of... <laughs> business schools I've ever seen. It's so impressive. So clearly you're offering something that other people are not. How did you come to this sort of organizational leadership work? I've always been passionate about helping people find hope and optimism in their lives through their pursuit of their career dreams. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, in the 1980s. And the steel industry was in steep decline at the time. And that absence of vibrant, stable, reliable industry that fostered people's level of hope and belief that their hard work would enable them to provide for their families was palpable. The absence of that was palpable in in the 1980s. And so I was very fortunate because I was always surrounded by people who encouraged me to dream and who had also achieved and accomplished many things through their work and found a deep sense of purpose and commitment and integrity associated with the work that they did. So I was in high school trying to figure out how I could make a career out of helping other people to find more joy in their careers. So then you go to college and you experiment with different majors. I went to the University of Virginia for undergrad, and I was part of an Echo Scholars program, which was a form of an honors college in which we didn't have to declare a major. We could create our own interdisciplinary major. So I started creating my own interdisciplinary major in organizational studies. And I took Mm. courses in organizations anywhere that I could. And then, you know, some of the more traditional arts and sciences to to supplement that. Um, But I just kept feeding that passion and then decided I did want to pursue a PhD. And so I needed to declare a major in psychology so that I could pursue the psych PhD and found my way to organizational psychology. And that's what I've been doing ever since. You're one of the only people I've ever met who knew what you wanted to do when you were in college. <laughs> you know, I had other interesting ideas about what I might do. And and who knows, one day, life is long, I might pursue some of those as well. I, I don't know. But this piece about trying to help people to connect with and find more joy in their work is something that has been meaningful to yeah. me since childhood. Yeah. And it seems so prescient because maybe it feels like in this last decade or even last five years, alone, there has been an acknowledgement that what we do 
particularly in this country and now in a sort of in this era of always being on and available, that what you do is a defining of your life and that it should somehow be an extension of your purpose. And I was watching a lecture that you were giving at um, in Michigan where you talk about this Dr. Seuss-like paradox of everyone, four out of five people saying that they feel overextended yet underengaged. Yes. So um, so we're building there off of the Gallup Institute's research on employee engagement, which shows globally that only one out of five workers are fully engaged on a regular basis. And those who are actively disengaged, according to the Gallup Institute, we would be better served if we paid them to stay home. Wow. Because that level of active disengagement is so toxic that it undermines the performance of everyone else who's a part of the team, uh, runs off clients and customers as well, and of course has a number of uh, deleterious or adverse health consequences too. So how do we get there? Yeah. You know, how, how, do, how do we get to this state of, of active disengagement? You know, I watched, watched the recent news and look at some of the horrifying actions that people have taken when they have felt disengaged, disregarded, disrespected in their workplaces, Mm -hmm. in their communities, taking lethal action against others and themselves because they feel that their work environment or experience or their community has become so toxic that we should be concerned. Mm -hmm. We should devote our best effort to understanding how we can maximally engage individuals in the work that they're doing. I get it. Some jobs are more exciting and attractive and appealing than others. And some people have skill sets that allow them to take on greater scope of responsibility. And maybe that helps to make work more interesting and exciting. But across the board, across those levels of responsibility, across age groups, we're hearing a theme that society is asking more of us Mm -hmm. from our work, right? So people are saying, I'm overextended. I'm overextended. You're asking too much. The pace of technology, this 24-7 lifestyle, which means I'm always on, mm-hmm. you know, which means when I'm trying to connect with my colleagues, I also have to give them some personal details in in 3D or even 4D details about my life and what I do over the weekend and what my hobbies are and who my friends are and what I look like in a bathing suit. I mean, all of these kinds of things that are now, you know, how I, how I celebrate my partner on Father's Day or Mother's Day, or if I'm grieving a loss, you know, all of these things are becoming these public disclosures that are now also expected of us to form our professional relationships, right? right. So you're asking me to do more in terms of tasks. You're asking me to be more available. You're asking me to give more of my time to work because I'm accessible and available 24-7. But you're also asking more of me 
in sharing my personal Mm -hmm. experiences and identity and background. Okay. So, so many individuals are saying across levels, across industries, across regions, I'm tapped out. Mm -hmm. I'm really feeling overextended right now. Work is becoming so demanding and the standards just keep going up, 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 up. Right. Okay. Here's the irony in it. At the same time, they're also feeling underutilized. Right. I'm so busy like a hamster on a wheel doing all of these other things that the work is requiring of me right now, but they're not feeding my sense of purpose. You know, they're not bringing me that level of engagement and joy in the work that I'm doing. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, I'm doing all of these activities that are pulling me away from my intention and my focus to bring the best of my skills and my talents and my perspectives and ideas to the work itself. So take, for example, physicians. We often hear physicians talking about new patient management systems, the medical record systems that are that are now digitized. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to spend so much time now, you know, filling out these forms and making sure that I've entered everything correctly in the boxes, you know, in real time and questioning the efficiency of that from a time standpoint versus the quality of the engagement that they're able to have with the patients and just being present and hearing and seeing and observing what is said and what is unstated, that would give them some signals as to the the well-being or the illnesses that the patient might manifest. I've heard it from police officers. Yeah, I'm sure everywhere, (laughs) up and down and sideways. I was working with principals yesterday. Yeah. And this is like a common refrain. So what is the antidote? Like what, how do we, what's the way to rethink how people, I know it's not external rewards, right? It's not like a question of, oh, if you just paid me more, because it is across industries. For some people, that's certainly true, I'm sure. But it's not that. Like how do you, what is, what's the required shift? Yeah, most bosses would say, I can't afford to pay you for everything I need from you. Mm -hmm. In the current economy, the balance sheet just doesn't pay off. Even on my, or, you know, the balance sheet just doesn't measure up. Even on my best day, the numbers don't align so that I have enough tangible fiscal resources to reward or even motivate. If we're talking the carrot tactic, even motivate people to continue to drive and push at this lever, at this level. So you're absolutely right. What we're talking about is a shift in tapping into people's intrinsic motivation. And first to do that, we have to understand what drives them, Mm -hmm. what lights them up, what makes them tick. What is unique and distinctive and special about them that we can't afford to lose or ignore or miss out on? Mm -hmm. We need to make it our task to identify the underutilized potential within each individual on our team 
within the organization, within each child in a classroom or adult for, for that for that matter as well, and and find out what they have to contribute. Mm-hmm. And then engage in the shared work of designing better pathways so that they can contribute from that position of strength to the work that we're doing together. So how do you begin to do that as a leader? How do you begin? So let's talk about it from the point of view of a leader and then from the point of view of someone who is in the organization wanting to be more in line with their purpose. Mm -hmm. The first thing I would say is that the leader has to do the work for her or himself first. You cannot recognize, tap into, activate, harness another person's potential if you aren't also operating within that space. So the the practice that I consider the engine behind this project of maximizing potential is called radical affirmation. And I use the phrase radical affirmation because radical symbolizes three things. The first radical well, that's weird. That's unusual. <laughs> like affirmation in the context of the workplace, when we typically focus our scarce attention and resources on trying to eliminate the problems or the obstacles or the risks that we're facing, we don't have time to get around to affirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a luxury. That's just the, the happy talk. That's not core. That's not central. So for me to come back and say, if we want to address the deepest issues, problems, and challenges we're facing in the workplace right now, we have to start practicing affirmation. That's radical. Mm -hmm. The second aspect of being radical is that it also has to be extreme. It means that we can't just use our balanced perspective to try to focus on the weaknesses, fix the weaknesses, and give some compliments on the way to keep people motivated and engaged. We have to pivot. And our central focus has to be around this question of potential. And so that we're looking at each individual and we're trying to understand how we can best activate the potential for that individual. So if I'm the leader and I'm looking at my team, then I'm practicing radical affirmation because I am going to take an intense or extreme focus on the strengths and the potential that each individual brings to that team. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to document it. We're going to make a plan for how each person's strengths can complement one another's and how they align with our collective goal and strategy so they can enhance the work that we have to do together. So it has to be an extreme Mm -hmm. and intense focus. And do you find in your work that someone's strengths or where where they seem to exhibit excellence does align with their purpose? Or sometimes are you exploiting and doing this work, are you exploiting something that maybe they find tedious. Like I have people on my team who are intensely organized to the point of (laughs) disorder. I mean, I live for it, 
But is yeah. that is that where I push them, or do you, how do you determine that that strength is something that feeds their soul? That is such a powerful question. So what we talk about is how to activate best selves, Mm -hmm. how to teach people to use their strengths, to leverage their strengths in ways that increase their personal vitality and also create value for others. So being at our best is like this sweet spot when we're taking a set of our core strengths and we're putting them into practice in a way that feeds our soul and it also adds value, contributes, Mm -hmm. helps to strengthen and build up and edify other people or the organization itself. Uh, So it's it's a higher bar than just knowing your strengths and exploiting those strengths. Mm -hmm. We're trying to tap into this quality of experience that requires a sweet spot. Now, keep in mind with this sweet spot, we're three-dimensional, right? Because your initial question was, what if it's tedious? Do you still want to exploit it? Sometimes you might have to. I am am a professor, (laughs) which means that one of my requirements is grading. Grading is not the most fulfilling aspect of the work that I do as a professor. I'll say that candidly. It is, however, a requirement for the learning process, for the students. It is a requirement for accountability and making sure that everyone's tuition dollars are being spent, you know, in a legitimate way. It also helps the students to get the necessary feedback so that they can have a better sense of what they've learned and what other learning opportunities may present themselves. Right. Am I at my best when I'm grading a stack of exams like over the winter holidays? No, that's not <laughs> that's not when you're going to see me as vibrant and and jovial and, and bouncing around. Now, if I've read a student's dissertation draft and then we sit down and we're having a conversation about that draft, I'm giving them some observations of what I've read and what it makes me think about. They're sharing and asking questions. Then we found a way where I'm using the same strengths, but the activity, the practice of it, it just gives me a, a deeper sense of, of vitality. Right. Let's, I also want to ask you about identity because I know that's a, a sort of a cornerstone of your work. And I would imagine, particularly in today's workforce, which is more representational than it has been, although that's probably debatable particularly in different industries, how does that come into it in the way where when you're talking about leaders and people on those teams and career pathing them and exploiting potential, I should stop using the word exploiting, it's not positive, but uh, harnessing <laughs> potential or, or really growing people, where does identity and sort of cultural understanding and that whole 
language of, you know, diversity and inclusivity and how does that come into it? Because I would imagine there's a lot of disconnect. It should permeate through all of it. It doesn't always. Mm -hmm. It doesn't often permeate through all of it, but it should. The diversity, the inclusion, the cultural understanding should be understood and recognized as the undercurrent that pushes individuals and groups toward their highest potential. And that happens in a few ways. First, the acknowledgement that the conditions that activate my best self are different from the conditions that would activate your best self. My core strengths are different than your core strengths. Mm -hmm. The whole purpose of us working together in a collaborative fashion is because we have a belief that there is value in the partnership and that each of us has something to contribute. We each have something to bring to the table. I use the potluck analogy. What's the point of having a potluck when you have 17 pots of spaghetti? <laughs> you know, that it, it's, it completely defeats the purpose. But in organizational life, we become so fixated on corporate culture and global, you know, generalized core capabilities that we forget to invite mm -hmm. that diversity in to the very fabric of the organization itself. So, so that's one core assumption that guides all of this work and the practice of radical affirmation itself is that I have to recognize, invite, and invest in diversity in a strategic way. Mm -hmm. That's the heart of radical affirmation. Second, in the heart of radical affirmation is the acknowledgement that my identities, which include my cultural experiences, are sources of strength. They're not just problems or mm -hmm. issues. We've grown accustomed to talking about diversity from a deficit perspective. This is a challenge. This is a problem that needs to be solved. They're a group of people who are lacking. How do we bring them up to speed? The achievement gap in conversation in schools, for instance. The pipeline issue in workplaces, for instance. Even around representation, the conversation pivots such that it's not about embracing the rich potential of humans from diverse backgrounds. It's about addressing a lack. Mm-hmm or a gap, and then that becomes like the overarching and driving conversation. And what's missing from that, and what I found in my research studies, is that individuals walking in their own shoes, telling the stories of their own lives, do not talk about their cultural backgrounds and experiences uni unilaterally through a deficit lens, mm -hmm. a negative or lacking lens. You want to say, you know, one of the moments when I was at my best was when I talked to all of the teachers in my school about how much I respect the ways in which the some of the children from immigrant families 
have flourished this academic year, mm-hmm. how hard they've worked and some of the obstacles they've overcome. And that resonated, that experience resonated with a principal so much that he talked to his teachers about it. He made an announcement in front of the school about it, resonated with him because his parents had been immigrants. Right. So part of his cultural background allowed him to see and recognize the strength in other individuals who would typically be marginalized. Right. Different example of studied journalists from diverse cultural backgrounds, and they talk about the ways in which their experiences, their identities provide a lens or a unique angle or a spin on a particular story so that they may be uh, looking at the recession as part of a, as the business section of business reporters, but they're able to find a unique angle or a spin on the recession and how it's affecting this group of women or this working class community in West Virginia. And that many of the other reporters who don't have the same background or the same frame of reference may not have even thought to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of ways that the diversity and inclusion should permeate. Now we can talk about why it doesn't (laughs) and why why that's so hard. One reason that it seems like it doesn't (laughs) is that we've lost the thread on the narrative of this country too, which is that it was entirely founded by immigrants with nothing but dream and perseverance and work ethic. Like you look at any major corporation or company and trace it back to its roots and it wasn't funded necessarily, some in the modern technical age. But like if you look back at, you know, it's primarily people who came to this country with nothing who decided to build something. And I feel like we've become disconnected and now our only point of reference is who's going to get, who's going to have angel or who's going to have seed investment and then who's going to get institutional capital, which obviously favors men and white men. But we've sort of forgotten what's actually at the root of business in this country. I don't know. That might be a... No, I can go there with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I think the historical lens is so important. I find it fascinating that in business education, we're so reticent to invoke an historical lens. Mm hmm to remind people of the origins of the belief systems that have become institutionalized Mm -hmm. and normalized in our society and the way that we do business. And one of those core belief systems had to do with the idealism and the optimism and the desire and the drive to make something out of nothing, Mm -hmm. right? And those same beliefs still drive the hopes and dreams of thousands of starry-eyed business students these days who are imagining what their entrepreneurial venture may be. You know, incidentally, millennial MBA students 
are much more likely to dream about entrepreneurial ventures than to dream about being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Not surprised. That's not where they anchor their (laughs) dreams any longer. And so there's a thread that is being continually woven through the fabric of our industries globally. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was driven by U.S. history. There's another side to U.S. history as well that is not as optimistic, not as hopeful, and is really a taboo topic, particularly in business schools, more discussable in the sociology and anthropology Mm -hmm. departments, perhaps political science and public health, but business schools, somewhat taboo. But my colleagues and I have started to name it and talk more explicitly about the origins of legitimating worker exploitation. Mm. And so when you use the word, and you said, I'm not going to say exploit potential anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, because ex- exploitation, once we talk about diversity and inclusion, you're absolutely right. It takes on a different flavor, right? Yes. Much more bitter much more harsh, much more sour, not sweet, not appealing, not enticing, but a very different edge. And so we know that along with the colonists who came, there were also enslaved Africans and there were disenfranchised indigenous people and systems of mass production in agriculture and later in industry were built on these norms Mm -hmm. of hierarchy, of abuse, of overwork, and underutilization. So this paradox, you think about an enslaved laborer in 1820, they would tell you every day, I'm overworked and underutilized, right? But it didn't permeate throughout the experiences of many others who thought that they had greater opportunities to thrive and flourish, you know, until more recently. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not a new dynamic. Yeah. You know, exploitation is the opposite of radical affirmation. Right. You know, you can love what someone has to offer, but... If you're exploiting it, then you're not recognizing and acknowledging and appreciating the value in it. And therefore, it's not affirming. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com. 
com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. I believe that jewelry stores energy and emotion, and that certain pieces of jewelry can carry subtle messages with them. I think about this with diamonds, which are, of course, such a symbol themselves in our culture. At the end of the day, natural diamonds are really gemstones that nature has been creating and forming and shaping for billions of years. They are inherently rare and finite, and in their DNA is a pretty incredible history of the earth, which is one reason why it's important that they're recovered responsibly from the earth. When you hold a natural diamond, you're essentially holding a wonder of nature in your hand. And I like that diamonds become more valuable and meaningful over time. They're durable and they never lose their brilliance, which is not the case with most things in life, right? I think this is all part of what makes a diamond a compelling gift to give yourself. Whether that's to celebrate a life milestone, like a birthday or a new baby, or to mark the beginning of a new job or relationship or the end of a significant project. Or, you know, just because. To learn more about natural diamonds, visit realisadiamond.com. Okay, let's hear more from Laura Morgan Roberts. So taking that theme mm-hmm. of how what's what's happened across, you know, history and and culture, like how do we how do we start to undo that beyond pushing for representation and pushing for more of the brass tacks of diversity and inclusion and and feeding the pipeline the the stuff that we all think about today yeah how do we it seems yeah. like it's a deeper soul issue it's a deeper soul issue when you, you asked earlier about what leaders should do and then what individuals should mm-hmm. do and with respect to these radically affirming practices. And I started by saying the leaders have to do the work first. Mm-hmm. Because if if you're feeling depleted, then you're going to have a scavenger mentality. Right. And that scavenger mentality is going to lead you to behave in oppositional and exploitative ways because you're going to feel like you have to do whatever it takes to survive. Right. And only the strongest will survive. And many people herald that scrappy mentality. And I'm not saying it doesn't lead to results. It can absolutely drive results. But if we're talking about how to rewrite the script of who we are as a country, of what we can generate through a global economy. We have to get out of this scrappy, Mm -hmm. win at all costs mentality. Totally. So we have to start practicing more radical affirmation with ourselves. We have to start acknowledging and recognizing our strengths, honoring those strengths and saying, I am not perfect. My worst self is as real as my best self. But my intention is that my best self will be my default in the way that I show up. And my focus and emphasis will be human to human trying to understand 
what I can learn from you mm-hmm. and what can I can learn through my relationship with you. This is not a hero's journey or a heroine's journey where you go off into the wilderness like a Disney movie in a long, long journey with nobody but you and a random animal and, you know, your animal sidekick, your animal sidekick, (laughs) not random, beautiful, loving, cuddly animal sidekick. And, you know, you find your your space, you find your peace, you know. That's not the kind of work that we're talking about here. That work is you can clarify your value, you clarify your core principles, you know, abstract yourself, extract yourself from all of the pressures and the social expectations about who you should be and what you should do. And, you know, there's a time for that journey. But what we're talking about is the work of healing and building and co-creating together so that we can have a more vibrant global economy. And that can only happen human to human. So when I can honor and affirm my best self, then I feel more secure, more generous, Mm -hmm. I have more resources available. I recognize that this is not a zero-sum game. We're fundamentally interconnected. I can never be my best self until you are your best self. And you can never be your best self until I am my best self. So this is a collective project, not an individual project. And that collective project has to cut across these fault lines of deep-seated power status, inclusion, exclusion, marginalization, insiders, outsiders, oppression, overt bias, implicit bias. Uh, We have to believe that everybody has the capacity to lead Mm -hmm. if given the resources and the skills to learn. So one of the things that you called up was, you know, are we really making progress here? You know, how far have we come? I can't deny that, that there is progress. I'm an African-American professor at business schools, female professor at business schools. I'm under the age of 50 and I've been doing this for 20 years. I know a lot of others. Mm-hmm. That's progress. That is progress. <laughs> the point is, I'm not the only one. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not going to deny that. My father just celebrated his 50th class reunion from Howard Medical School. He's been practicing orthopedic surgery ever since. And obviously a lot has happened in 50 years. My colleagues and I at Harvard Business School just worked with the school's initiative to commemorate the founding of the African-American Student Union in 1968. Mm -hmm. And we published a sort of museum exhibit archive in Baker Library on Harvard Business School's campus. We wrote some internal reports. We hosted an academic conference. We had a business leaders conference with over 500 people came. Several CEOs were present as well. And now we're publishing an edited book Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience, which is now available on Amazon for pre-order. So excited about that. So in looking at all of that and really taking this deep dive in the historical perspective, it would be flippant and disrespectful of the struggles and the journeys of everyone who has advocated for inclusion and fought so hard 
at least on this soil, mm-hmm. for hundreds of years, 400 years when the first African set foot on U.S. soil this summer. We can't disregard that work and mm-hmm. say, oh, there's been no progress. Right. Do we still have work to do? Absolutely. Where is that work? It's about who is granted the benefit of positive expectations. Not just a benefit of the doubt when something goes wrong, mm-hmm. but that just common assumption that, hey, if we just take some time, if we invest, if we give candid feedback, if we provide some support and the right kind of opportunities, this person can be just as great, just as influential, and become just as powerful a leader of our organization as that person. Mm-hmm. That's where we're trying to go. Yeah. I think, too, some of the perception of this lack of progress, or not lack of progress, but frustration that you see, you know, obviously a lot of it on social media, too, is that I think everyone's just disappointed because we thought we were farther than we are. You know, like, I think that that's been the depressing revelation of the last few years. Culturally, people have be- are just becoming, it's almost stuck or it's stuck in discomfort too. I think, and it comes right. from that feeling of not exactly what you're saying, which is when leaders are not operating from a place of generosity and abundance themselves, it becomes, there's a like a lack of comfort that I think can I'm not articulating that very well. There's like a dearth of curiosity. There's an, 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 a, you know, you, people shy away from hard conversations. Uh, yes. On, on many levels, insecurity builds walls. Yeah, exactly. Not bridges. Mm-hmm. Literally and metaphorically. And I think seeing in full public view, many of the transgressions that perpetuate exclusion mm-hmm. has been the most disturbing and disconcerting aspect of the past few years. Mm-hmm. There was a belief, this is how we taught about leadership and about corporate culture, you know, in business schools. There was the belief that we had social control mechanisms in place such that we had shared values. And when leaders violated those values in public ways, they would be held accountable for those violations. Mm -hmm. And that leaders, therefore, who behaved in ways that overtly disenfranchised and denigrated other people were just out of favor. Like mm-hmm. we had come beyond that. Leadership theories had evolved beyond that. That's old times. That was mid 20th century autocratic leadership. That's out of style. Now you can't lead that way anymore. You won't be able to succeed. Mm-hmm. People will not follow those kinds of leaders anymore. You know, we had that generalized belief system, you know, separate from what individuals may have thought was happening or not happening around the inclusion or exclusion of different identity groups. There was just this fundamental belief in 
the shared endorsement of authentic and ethical leadership. Mm-hmm. And so again, you know, what has, I think, given us a sense of collective whiplash <laughs> and still has us on our heels as intellectuals, as activists, as parents trying to raise kids who are watching these clips on the news and then using that to create a new script for what leaders can do and can't do and what you can get away with and you can't get away with. Oh, what? You can shoot somebody on the street? Right. Have it videotaped? Have it go viral millions and not be held accountable for it at all? Mm -hmm. Really? You can do that? Yes. We now have confirmation that not just one person can get away with that, but many, many people can get away with those kinds of actions. You know, I used to think that if you were going to behave in those kinds of ways, you better do it behind closed doors because you didn't want anybody to find out. Now, we always knew that those kinds of things were happening. Nobody thought there weren't backdoor dealings. People, I don't think people believed that sexual harassment had, you know, completely (laughs) gone away, gone away, right? But it was out of favor, Mm -hmm. you know, that you couldn't do those kinds of things on full blast in public and, you know, and certainly not at the same time when you were trying to petition for more power and support and yet still be endorsed for increased power and authority. But that's what I also think is actually quite promising in a weird way is that it used to be that we look to our government to establish norms and make progress. And now we're moving that expectation to business, right? And there's a certain accountability because as consumers in business, we have the power to reject companies that don't align with our values. And so I think that that's, there is a lot of promise there in terms of watching the companies that are moving their asses to do the right thing for the planet, for people. And so there is this it's it's weird, and I wish it didn't take that to get there. But I do think that activist consumers are now recognizing, like, shit, I can only spend money with companies that have female founders or really amazing diversity in their board and then their leadership team. And, and b- people have access to that information. So I think in a way business can and is leading here and probably the future of healthy businesses is partly predicated on their ability to properly represent the world. And that, and that consumer activism is a political act. Mm-hmm. And the civil rights movement in the United States in the mid 20th century gained a tremendous amount of momentum through consumer activism. It was a bus boycott. Yep. That was a financial decision. You know, there were sit-ins at lunch counters that were influencing the inequity in commercial operations. And those two aspects of the movement, the freedom rides, 
mm-hmm. for having access to a public service. If I bought a ticket, I should be able to ride on this bus. Martin Luther King's last speech before he was assassinated is titled, I've been to the mountaintop. And we often quote the end of that speech because it's so prescient. It's literally right before his assassination where he's saying, if I die, I will have peace because I have been to the mountaintop. And he's using this parallel of ascending to the top of the mountain like Moses and the Mount of Transfiguration and just being on this higher plane of living in one's God-given purpose. So we hold on to that spiritual call. But if you read the speech, he was speaking to a group of Memphis sanitation workers who were striking Mm. because of the inequity in the work conditions. And he is calling for people, citizens of this country, to make other kinds of consumer-based acts of protest. And he starts naming some large companies as well. So go to the speech. You'll be shocked to see which ones he calls out and says, we also need to boycott or apply economic pressure to this company and that company and that company until they start hiring, until they change their cultures, until they allow for equal representation. You know, and this is in 1968. Yeah. So for business to now take up the call and to do so in a very public way, I think is a long time coming. Yep. A lot of the norms for commercial engagement and scrappy, whatever it takes to win, um, have been initiated and, and continued to uh, to foster through business and some of our assumptions about profit over everything else. Mm-hmm. And so to now push back and say, business, you have to be the agent of inclusion and access and flourishing Mm -hmm. within a global economy. Totally. And social good, right? And social good. The two are not mutually exclusive. They're not. And that's, I think, what consumers are starting to demand. Yeah. Thanks for listening to my chat with Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts. For more on Laura, head to lauramorganroberts.com. And the new Harvard Review Press book that she co-edited is called Race, Work, and Leadership. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Grace asks, a lot of people endorse the 80-20 rule in order to stay healthy. But how do you realistically do this? Do you say no to french fries 8 out of 10 times? (laughs) No, Grace. No. If there are french fries in front of me, I will eat them 10 out of 10 times. So I just try not to order them 10 out of 10 times. I'll tell you how I do it. No judgment. Everybody should be happy and live their lives and do what makes them feel good. But I try to eat really clean during the day and then back off at night. So it's probably more like a 70-30 rule. (laughs) 
but I'll exercise in the morning and drink a ton of water and have my goop glow and maybe have a good dense greens juice and then have a really healthy lunch, like no gluten, no dairy, no sugar. And then at night I kind of have a glass of wine or a martini and I have my dinner. And if I go out and they're good French fries, I, I have the French fries. I, I love, I love the feeling of enjoying food. And so I, I kind of leave that for, for dinner time. Thank you, JP. If you have your own question you want JP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.